1983, a preschool run by Virginia McMartin and her family came under scrutiny when Judy Johnson, the mother of one of the students there, alleged Ray Bucky, a teacher at the school and McMartin's grandson, had sexually abused her son. While it was initially unclear if the boy substantiated these claims or denied them, Miss Johnson continued to assert that her son and many other children at the preschool were being horribly abused. Johnson made wild accusations against the school, with claims that her son had witnessed bestiality, acts of witchcraft, such as Ray Bucky flying through the air, and terrifying acts of physical abuse, such as Peggy Bucky, the school administrator, drilling holes under one child's arms. Police at the time interviewed Ray Bucky about the accusations, but did not charge him due to a lack of corroborating evidence. It was later revealed that the accuser, Miss Johnson, had a history of mental health problems. She was psychiatrically hospitalized shortly after making the allegations and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Johnson eventually passed away from complications related to chronic alcohol abuse in 1986. Despite not having the evidence to charge Ray Bucky, police continued to give credence to Miss Johnson's accusations and, as part of their investigation, sent a letter to the parents of approximately 200 students of the school. The letter stated Ray Bucky was being investigated for molesting students at the school and asked parents to question their children about whether they had also been sexually victimized. In the letter, parents were encouraged to question their children as to whether they ever witnessed Bucky engage in specific acts such as tying up students or leaving the classroom to be alone with a child. The letter also asked parents not to discuss the investigation with anyone outside of their immediate families. Children's Institute International, a therapy clinic that specialized in interviewing and working with abuse victims, was asked to question hundreds of children who had also been students at the McMartin Preschool as part of the investigation. The interviews, which were videotaped, often included the use of leading questions where the children were asked to speculate about events that may have occurred but were not actually witnessed. After these interviews were conducted, more than 360 children reported experiencing some kind of abuse. Reports from the children included fantastic claims such as witnessing or being subjected to satanic rituals in secret chambers underneath the school, seeing witches fly through the air, riding in hot air balloons, and seeing children flush down toilets. Several attempts were made to locate physical evidence to validate the children's stories, such as the underground chambers, but none was ever found. One child even claimed that film star Chuck Norris had abused him after being shown a picture of the actor by the McMartin's defense attorney. Three years into the investigation, prosecuting attorneys and police finally agreed that the original accuser, Miss Johnson, was mentally ill. While not shared with the McMartin defense initially, it was then claimed that Miss Johnson's psychosis was the product of the abuse perpetrated by the McMartins rather than false accusations as part of psychotic delusions. It was noted, however, that Miss Johnson did acknowledge her mental health issues at the beginning of the investigation. On March 22, 1984, Virginia McMartin, Peggy McMartin Bucky, Ray Bucky, Peggy Ann Bucky, and three other teachers from the McMartin Preschool were arrested and charged with 115 counts of child abuse. These charges were later increased to 321 counts of child abuse involving 48 children. At the preliminary hearing, the prosecuting attorneys presented their case alleging that the school administrators and teachers had engaged in what would become known as satanic ritual abuse. The children who testified, however, provided notoriously unreliable and unbelievable information. In 1986, a new district attorney named Ira Reiner dropped all charges against Virginia, Peggy, Anne, 
and the three teachers, stating that the evidence against them was incredibly weak. The charges against Peggy McMartin Bucky and Ray Bucky, however, remained. On July 13, 1987, the case against Peggy and Ray Bucky commenced under intense media coverage. Although confident, the state's case was littered with prosecutorial inconsistencies. While the judge in the case allowed the prosecution to call several medical witnesses, the defense was only allowed to call one, thus making their case appear weak. Later in the trial, a jailhouse informant came forward and claimed Ray Bucky confessed to him. However, this informant later confessed that he lied in a series of criminal trials in exchange for leniency. Ultimately, after a three-year trial, Peggy McMartin Bucky was acquitted, while the jury acquitted Ray Bucky on 52 of the 65 counts against him, they could not unanimously agree on the remaining charges which resulted in a mistrial. In May of 1990, Ray Bucky was retried on six of the charges that were undecided in the previous trial. Again, the jury was deadlocked and a second mistrial was declared. The prosecution decided against retrying Ray Bucky a third time and he was finally released having served the five-year duration of his trial in county jail. Extensive media coverage during the investigation and trial seemed to inflame the sensational claims made by the prosecution in a bid for TV ratings. It was not until Ray Bucky's second mistrial that some in the media began to acknowledge the evidential and prosecutorial problems with the case. Peggy Ann Bucky eventually successfully sued to have her teaching credentials restored, and even some children who were part of the case have come out as adults and acknowledged that they never witnessed any abuse at the school. The McMartin trial took a total of seven years and cost roughly $15 million to prosecute, making it the most expensive criminal trial in United States history. It did not result in a single conviction. This episode is about the McMartin trial. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. David, this episode is about a case that we've alluded to in other episodes. And while this case occurred in the 1980s, there are many similarities to the Salem witch trials, which we discussed in season one. Oh, absolutely. While the 1980s may seem like a long time ago, it really isn't that long when we consider it. This case was tragic for so many individuals involved, both the children and the accused, but this case did prompt many changes in how child sexual abuse cases are investigated and prosecuted in the United States. I think it's pretty clear from the narrative that there were many things that went wrong with this case, starting with the initial accusations made by Judy Johnson. 
It's still unclear to me why law enforcement and the prosecutors did not seriously question her allegations, given that she made such bizarre statements like people flying, babies being murdered, and children being forced to drink blood. Additionally, Ms. Johnson was known to have a severe mental illness, which caused her to be paranoid and delusional. There were also problems with the letter sent to parents, as it used suggestive language and allowed the parents to discuss the allegations prior to police questioning. Now, I know you said in the intro that the letter told the parents not to discuss it amongst themselves, but let's be honest, what parent wouldn't? Well, yeah, something like that, charges that are that explosive, I think that all the parents were probably talking about it. And they were probably terrified, so I could absolutely see them reaching out to one another. To be fair, those types of allegations are every parent's worst nightmare. Absolutely. So also, if the parents were panicking about the language in the letter, that may have also led them to use suggestive language or leading questions when they talk to their children about it. Sure. So then we have the issue of the child interviews. This case is actually one of a few similar cases from that time period that prompted the development of standards of best practice and specialized training for child forensic interviews. I wanted to speak a little more at length about this because I feel these interviews were so heavily relied upon in this case because there was no physical evidence. Right. And while this was the primary evidence presented by the prosecution, jurors stated they believed the children had been coerced by the interviewers to make these allegations. Now, I don't do forensic child interviews, neither do you, nor have either of us in the past, But this is something I think you and I are both probably familiar with, as we've both worked in a treatment capacity with youth in the past. The September 2015 issue of the Juvenile Justice Bulletin, put out by the Department of Justice, focused on the best practices for child forensic interviewing. And in this bulletin, they actually referenced the McMartin case and how the use of suggestion, speculation, and fantasy in those interviews was inappropriate for a criminal investigation. The first set of practice guidelines were actually put forth by the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children in 1990, and over time, as additional research was done, these standards of best practice also evolved. The Department of Justice, first and foremost, stated that individuals who do these types of interviews should have specialized formal training. Interviewers must take into account the child's age, developmental stage, and culture. Age and developmental level are extremely important because very young children remember things and convey things differently than older children and adults. The ability to convey memories tends to increase with age and as verbal skills get better. Children who've been traumatized may have difficulty recalling events in a linear fashion, and trauma can also interfere with memory formation. Not recalling parts of a traumatic event is actually a common occurrence. Plus, you know, the interview itself can be re-traumatizing, as you can imagine, and efforts should be made to reduce this. That's really the last thing that they want to do is to re-traumatize a child as part of the investigation. Sure, I would expect that to be the case. Yeah, so in the bulletin, they laid out several overall considerations for doing child forensic interviews. One is timing. They suggest the interview be done as quickly as possible, as this is when memory is the freshest. The more time passes, the more our memories start to degrade. Interviews should also be digitally recorded. Since these interviews are evidence, having a digital copy allows the judge or jury to review it exactly as it occurred. The setting where the interview is conducted should be neutral 
and should allow the child to feel comfortable and safe. The interviewer's role is to encourage the child to provide the most accurate and complete account as possible without using suggestive language or leading questions. The best way to do this is by using open-ended questions where children are encouraged to describe events in detail using their own language. The interviewer can then follow up on information the child previously provided by asking more specific questions. And they should give permission to not answer questions or say, I don't know, if they don't recall certain information. Some interviewers also use visual aids, such as paper dolls, or allow children to draw so children can convey information in a nonverbal format, which may be really much easier for them if their verbal skills aren't as well developed. Well, the, the, the part also stated about them being able to say no or I don't know I think was something that, that did come up in the trial as a big problem with the interviews because a lot of times the interviewers would try to dissuade the children from giving those types of answers. Yeah, and as you can imagine, you know, children are impressionable and a lot of times they want to please authority figures. So if they're being kind of forced to provide information, they may be, you know, more willing to do that than to just say, I don't know for fear of disappointing the authority figures. Right. So the best practice standards also suggest these interviews be structured in a particular format where the first portion is focused on rapport building. So this can be done through introductions and explaining the interview process in age-appropriate language. Interviewers should also emphasize the importance of telling the truth and encourage children to give detailed responses. The interviewer may ask the child to tell him or her some things about themselves or ask them about what they did earlier in the day. The interviewer can then ask questions to elicit additional details. This provides a child an opportunity to practice giving detailed narratives about their memories. It kind of sets the stage for the rest of the interview. The substantive phase of the interview is where the child is encouraged to provide his or her narrative of what occurred and the interviewer seeks additional details and clarification. This is where the interviewer wants to be especially mindful to use open-ended questions and avoid suggestive language. Finally, in the closure phase, the interviewer wraps things up, answers the child's questions, addresses any safety issues, and provides appropriate educational materials. So while we have models for conducting these interviews, it's still important to acknowledge this process can be tricky because children who've been abused may be embarrassed or afraid to discuss what happened. And interviewers do have to weigh the risk of continued abuse that may be occurring if they don't get the information versus the risk of proceeding with an interview if there's not been abuse and risking getting inaccurate information. One of the things that was suggested in the bulletin was that forensic interviewers work as part of a greater multidisciplinary team. This allows several people to consult, brainstorm, and provide feedback on the interview process. The other members of the team often observe the interview as it occurs, and during breaks can provide the interviewer with additional questions or observations to follow up on later in the interview. Forensic interviewers can also benefit from receiving supervision from more experienced interviewers or from consultation with colleagues. This allows for continued development of skills and helps them to identify bias or blind spots so they can be addressed and so they can minimize these. You know, child sexual abuse is a real problem and one that adults need to be aware of. Children should be educated about sexual abuse and encouraged to tell a parent or other trusted adult when something happens. 
However, children should not be pressured to admit abuse, and when children do report abuse, qualified forensic interviewers should be used to reduce the likelihood of suggestion, contamination of evidence, or further traumatization of the child. It's important to remember that the information gleaned through child forensic interviews is important evidence and that care needs to be exercised in how this information is obtained and recorded. Oftentimes, a child's statement is the only evidence available in a case. While this highlights the importance of believing children's reports, it also shows how false statements can be particularly harmful and devastating to innocent people. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting case. I've been fascinated with this case since I saw the HBO movie entitled Indicted, the McMartin trial, which came out back in 1995. That was a really good movie, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought it was really well done. You know, this movie had some big names in it from the time, but mostly it was about James Woods' character, an attorney named Danny Davis, who agrees to take on the defense of the McMartin preschool workers who are all related after they had been charged with horrific child abuse, including the term satanic ritual abuse, which was otherwise referred to as SRA. So some quick background. There was also another term that made some headlines during that time. That is most of the 80s and into the 90s. This term was satanic panic, which refers to a time when media was focusing a lot on the idea of satanic ritual abuse, or SRA. Really, this movement was a loose collective of social workers, law enforcement, media figures, and mostly Christian evangelists. But essentially what kicked it off was a book written in 1980 called Michelle Remembers by a Canadian psychiatrist named Lawrence Pazder. In this book, Michelle, who just so happened to be Pazder's wife, by the way, Uh, claimed that through psychotherapy, the two of them were able to uncover the repressed memories of Michelle, where she was horrifically abused as part of satanic rituals. As a matter of fact, Pazder was the first to coin the term ritualistic abuse. Well, this book turned out to be a huge success, leading to a lot of media coverage and lucrative media profile for Pazder, who became quite well known at the time. The book became a model for how SRA was profiled in law enforcement circles, with Pazder doing consulting on cases in which it was suspected. Does this remind you of any other cases? Gee, let me think about that. You know where the author, a mental health professional, had a pet theory, published a book about it, and suddenly the theory is taken as gospel? Gosh, this sounds so familiar. (laughs) Well... As it turns out, the book was later discredited. Again, does that sound familiar? Yes, I'm getting flashbacks of our season one finale on Sybil Dorset. Exactly. So this is a thing. This happens. You know, as a matter of fact, not, almost none of the stories told in the book about SRA endured by Michelle could be verified, especially tales of an 81-day non-stop ceremony involving dozens of people, which it was argued could not have happened at the time unnoticed by somebody. I mean, really? So 81 days? Right. That Eight- a, a little girl was missing or, I mean, somebody would have noticed. Yeah, somebody would have saw something. They also could not substantiate how Michelle, being five years old at the time, could have gone missing for such long periods of time. A car wreck that was undocumented, even though at the time the local newspaper reported on car wrecks. There were many details that, in the furor at the time, went unchecked, and when they were checked, could not be verified. The book also left out the fact that Michelle and Dr. Pazder left their own spouses for each other, which I'm sure is highly suspect and ethically dubious. If not illegal. Right. But it was a good story and people bought it, including Oprah Winfrey, who had Pazder on her show in 1989. 
Poor Oprah. I feel like she gets kind of like this. This is like another case. So what was the book that she had the author on the memoir? It was supposed to be a memoir. Yeah, you're thinking of uh, a million little pieces or a million tiny pieces or something like that. Yeah. So this was like the second time or the first time, I guess, poor Oprah got taken. Well, you know, I mean, I think Oprah's heart is in the right place. She wants to do what's best. Of course. And it's easy to get wrapped up into something like this, thinking that, oh my gosh, this is actually going on. This is evil. Yeah, totally. I totally understand why she would have gotten wrapped up in it. Yeah. This only served to reinforce the idea that the story was true, even if it really wasn't. Do you remember how talk shows of the 80s and 90s used to get people worked up, Jessica? Oh, yeah. I used to love watching those. Oh, of course. Because it, it, it was a riot. Sometimes they would talk about some really crazy things and they'd get people all riled up. And Oh, yeah. And I, I, I feel like I vaguely remember that episode of Oprah where she had Dr. Pastor on. Mm, okay. So Satanic Panic fell right smack dab in the middle of this and it made Pazder and his wife rich. So right from the beginning, we have a shaky foundation on which the notion of SRA is founded. But once it took hold, cases of so-called SRA started springing up and, of course, people started getting arrested. Interestingly, the website Vox did a good article in 2016 about how some of those arrested during the Satanic Panic period and charged with these crimes are still serving time today, even though the vast majority of those arrested had their convictions overturned. Wow. Enter the McMartin trial, which turned out to be the most expensive prosecution in California's history, something to the tune of $15 million and seven years of resources, and which ultimately resulted in no convictions. So think about that for a second. It boggles the mind. Because it's still like that's taking into account all of the cases since McMartin. That is still the most expensive case in California history. Yeah. Wow. Not just California history, United States history. Really? Yeah, that's what I read. That it wasn't, it was definitely the most expensive in the state of California's history, but also the most expensive criminal prosecution in the United States. Wow. But this is where the collective headspace of America was at the time. The Vox article that I mentioned brought up some good theories about why we were suddenly gripped by this kind of fear, including the idea that it was during the 1980s when we saw a rise of the need for the two-income household, which quite dramatically brought about the need for more daycare centers, which is where SRA was supposedly centered in the 80s. You and I know, Jessica, that this led to the idea of the latchkey kids in the 90s, That is, kids who would come home from school to empty houses because their parents had to work. Yeah, I think that became very normal during that time. Yeah. So that's some quick context for the trial that we're talking about. So what do I think is going on here? I will start by saying that it never ceases to amaze me how much we, and I include myself in this statement as I do it too, how much we like to project our fears and darkness onto other people, other things, other ideas, whatever. The more I looked at this case, the more I am convinced that the McMartin trial is symbolic of the darkness of the collective when it is not acknowledged, but instead buried and denied. I think it is human nature to do this. So for instance, let's take the job of politicians. It can be very easy for us as citizens to project all of our fears and collective anger onto, say, one person. So I said I wasn't going to do this in past episodes, you know, talk about politics, But here I am, and I'm going to talk a little bit about politics. So let's take the president of the United States, and I mean any president in modern times. doesn't have to be the current one, it can be any. 
you sort of have to realize that when you take a job like the presidency, you are going to be probably the easiest target in the world for the people to project their anger, darkness, insecurities, whatever, onto. That's not to say that any president is bad or any is good, but the psychology suggests, to me at least, that regardless of who the president is, they will have to lend themselves to our, us being the citizens, projections. I think one of the problems is that some politicians make it so easy for people to do that, to project onto them because of who they are. They don't seem like likable or particularly nice people. It makes it easy for us to project our fear over the state of the world currently, that with COVID or natural disasters or economic ruin or nuclear war or whatever it is, onto this one person. And again, if it were someone else, I have no doubt that we, we would be doing the same thing with them as well, whether they handled all that is going on in the world as best as humanly possible. Millions and millions of people would still have a problem with that particular president, no matter who it was. It's just human nature for us to do this. Blame the politicians, and then we elect more, and the cycle continues. This speaks to the nature of how we manage our own darkness. I bring up this example because I feel this kind of projection in the idea of satanic panic. So Jessica, you know that before I landed on the idea of my dissertation, that I, the one that I ultimately did, I kicked around a number of ideas. How could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you went through that process with me. I and, sure did. And it was a drawn out one, yeah. no question. Yeah. Well, one of those ideas would have been a theoretical dissertation on an idea that I had been fascinated with for a long time. And, and yeah, I mean, I remember when you were talking about this, and I do think it would have been a fantastic dissertation topic. I mean, I think the one you did was great, but this one also would have been interesting. Yeah, I, I, it would have been interesting. It, it was a little heady, I think is how you, what you called it at the time when we were kicking it around. Yeah. But one of the philosophical ideas that I worked with when I was in school was the idea that essentially in the modern era, we have lost the ability to express darkness in a controlled way. One of the best examples of this idea is the party of Mardi Gras, you know, the party that they have right before Lent. There was this sort of societal pressure release valve that was used to turn the whole nation of polite society upside down, where people of all walks of life could revel together. Social status was erased and delights of the flesh, yes, some hedonism, was engaged in. Historically, there have been many examples of this, going all the way back to ancient Rome, where arguably it probably went too far, to modern-day carnival in Brazil. I read an interesting essay some years ago by scholars Peter Stolybras and Alan White, where they examined the cultural effect of losing this kind of merriment in society, and how the idea of carnival has been slowly marginalized since the beginning of modern times. Now, the term modern has a very specific conceptual and philosophical meaning that I won't get too much into, but what we are generally talking about is industrialization and capitalism. So why am I bringing this up? Well, Stolybras and White talk about something called bourgeois hysteria, which is essentially the idea that the middle class will invent things to become hysterical about in the absence of ritual that allows space for the expression of our darkness, such as carnival, in the philosophical form. You know, certainly not the way it exists today with rides and fried Twinkies and things like that, but the way it, ha it has existed historically. And that's what this feels like to me. It feels like an invention for us to project our fears onto. So as Jung used to argue, what we resist will persist and usually come back in a much darker and virulent form. 
I'm not sure why the 1980s was the time for this, but it seemed right that something like this could capture our culture on a national scale and present itself as something we project our unacknowledged darkness onto. I'm wondering if it had something to do with the idea of nuclear catastrophe with the Soviets or something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, we were kind of in the thick of the, or, or coming near the end of the Cold War. So right. that had been an anxiety that, you know, Americans had been living with for quite a few years. Right. So satanic ritual abuse, which feels like an invention rather than something that actually exists to me, comes along at just the right time, and we as a collective latch onto it. So what I'm saying is that there has to be room for our darkness to coexist with the light. When there is not, it goes underground, so to speak, and we come up with inventions like satanic panic. Interestingly, when I was doing research for this episode, Jessica, I learned something about Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan back in the 1960s. Well, Dr. Pazder, when he was doing his talk show circuit, kept referring to Michelle's abuse as being perpetrated on her by the Church of Satan. That is, until Anton LaVey threatened to sue Pazder for libel, after which Pazder started claiming that actually it was a much older and much more secretive organization than LaVey's Church of Satan that had abused Michelle. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that part. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Also interestingly, LaVey did a number of things to rectify the image of the Church of Satan, including formally outlawing animal sacrifice. Now, this was something that I don't believe Satanists really did anyway. I think that that was just mythology, that they sacrificed animals. So this was really, I think, a symbolic way of LaVey letting the public know that, hey, you know, we're relatively harmless people. We're just practicing a religion and a belief system that is outside of the Judeo-Christian mainstream here in the United States. So I'm sure we'll talk about Satanism at some point, hopefully to clear up some misconceptions about it. But suffice to say, Satanists have also historically been the unwitting recipients of the darkness of others being projected onto them. But we'll get to that conversation at another time. Yeah, I think that would probably make for a really interesting episode. So, you know, all in all, this was a very expensive and unfortunate case for really all of those people involved. But I think it's the McMartin trials also spurred a lot of change in, you know, the way that we investigate child abuse cases. It also kind of shed some light, I think, on this kind of mass hysteria and panic that happened during the time. Um, and I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from continuing to talk about this case and kind of look critically at it. Yeah, I agree. I think that when it comes to children, we have to be especially careful how we attempt to get at information um, regarding their experiences. I think that there's a lot of magical thinking going on in the minds of children, and that can get wrapped up in things. I also think it's safe to say that child sexual abuse doesn't need Satan. This happens. You and I deal with sex offenders every day as part of what we do. Right. And uh, child abuse images, sexual abuse that was per perpetrated on children. And Satan has nothing to do with it. Now, we could argue that these acts are evil and there's a correlation or, or in some people's minds between Satanism and evil or whatever, depending on what orientation philosophical or religious orientation you come from but the fact of the matter is this has existed and there really is no need to assign some sort of religious motive for it well and i think you know there's lots of people who claim to be men of god who have 
perpetrated very horrific sexual abuse. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I think that that's a good point, that this is based on decisions that people make and that it doesn't have to be some supernatural force or some, you know, them trying to, to satisfy some supernatural being right. in order for these things to occur. Right. So we're going to wrap things up, but as always, we'll have some links to additional information on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also leave your comments or thoughts about this episode there. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. And I know we sometimes forget to say, but if you're enjoying our podcast, please leave us a rating or a review on your listening app of choice and let others know about us. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed us and to all of you who have reached out to us. We love hearing from you. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus both provided by Gemendo.